Hello, everybody. <laughs> Welcome to Wednesday night. I'm the substitute teacher. Be gentle on me. Tonight, I would like to speak on a subject that many of us, if not all of us, have considered in our lives and probably are considering right now. People that we know that we wish would come to Jesus and have a love for Jesus the same way we have a love for him and that they would have the the peace and contentment that we have come to know and as Christians we we know a peace and contentment that can't be known otherwise because it is coming from an almighty God we know to varying degrees current events and why things happen we can look at what goes on in the Middle East and we have an understanding that a non-Christian has no idea what we're talking about. We certainly know of future events when we get around to Revelation and things like that. We know of the sovereignty of God. And not everybody that walks into a Christian church can necessarily say that. But sovereignty is certainly what the Bible preaches in the Word. And it's certainly what we preach here. And knowing the sovereignty of God, it gives us a safety and security and being in his hands that we cannot possibly know otherwise. And because we know this, because we have this contentment and this peace and security, we want others to know this. And it's especially true of loved ones. And as you might guess, the reason I'm picking the subject is this has been a, a matter on my heart over the last two or three months, a little more than usual. <coughs> We tend to be passionate about this because we understand that this is a big issue. When the Twin Towers were being slammed with airplanes back in 2001, this was a big issue. If you were in the Twin Towers looking out the window and you saw the planes coming, when you hear the big boom in the building, any one of us seeing something like that would have enough sense to say, get out of the building now this is a big issue I don't want to hear why or what's the big deal get out of the building there's a need to spread the word to other people and, and everyday concerns things like maybe your job isn't going as well as you wish it would or maybe there's illness issues or could be a relationship issue but that doesn't matter at this point because the building has been slammed into by a commercial jet airliner. Get out of the building. This is a big issue. In this particular case, in this example, if you knew this was happening, you would know something that the other people didn't necessarily know because you were looking out the window and you saw the plane hit and you realized the seriousness of the situation. And we as Christians... We know something. By the grace of God, we know something. And thank God that he has come to us. We know about sin. We know about the need for a savior. We know who that savior is. This is a big issue. This is life and death. And when we think about this, we wonder, what do we do to spread the word and to tell people about Jesus Christ? And this, when you think about it, is kind of at the heart of legalism. Because isn't legalism all about what do I do to be saved? And they don't look at grace because the first thing you rush to is what do I do? 
Well, that's what you rush to in a big issue. What do I do? And you can't help but think that way. We're wired that way from childhood because ever since we were small kids, parents have been all over us about what to do and to do the right thing. And it's the nature of most men to want to fix stuff. If something goes wrong, <coughs> if the vacuum cleaner's broken, get the toolbox. Something else is wrong, fix it. That's just the nature of most men. And I've been in a relationship where that just kind of goes hand in hand, where I'm the fix-it guy. Maybe I could fix it, maybe I couldn't, but that's the way the brain worked. That's the nature of many of us. We just want to fix it, and in this case, we want to know what do we do to help loved ones come to Christ. My daughter is 31 years old, and my dad is 86. And neither one of them have really shown much interest in Jesus, I'm sad to say. People can understand when you scream at them to get out of the burning building when you shout it. But yet little interest is shown in Jesus. They don't see it as the big stuff, but we certainly do. And how, how I want them to know about Jesus and to know the big stuff my daughter hasn't listened to me as much as I wish she had in the past. And if she's paid a, a high price for it. But she's young enough, and she's a work in progress, and hope springs eternal. You'd never know. My dad is 86. And with all due respect to, to older folks, at 86, when you've had cancer and four heart attacks, Time is probably running short. And my dad takes a bucket full of medicine to keep him alive. We think alike. My dad and I are very, very much alike. I have two other brothers. They don't think the way we do. I like to think the middle brother looks like the milkman. God knows where the younger one come from. But my dad and I, we, our brains just work alike except for Jesus. He's against it, and what has happened in his life that has caused him to be against it, we never even got around to the subject because it's just something he doesn't want to talk about. So one day, years ago, because I know we think alike, I came up with what I thought was the question, the question that would bust the door wide open. And I said to him, if I could prove to you that Jesus is who he says he is, and prove it to your satisfaction where you would go, okay, I understand what you're saying, and the proof is solid. If I could prove that to you, would it change your life? He hesitated all of one second and said no. So much for my big attempt. <laughs> the door never opened. And we're back to what do I do? What do we do to loved ones to get them to be interested in, in Jesus, to know the love of Jesus like we do. And nearly all of us have similar issues, know people. It might not be family. It might just be close friends. But people we care about, we want them to come to know the love of Jesus. To those of you who have children, who have always loved Jesus, you are so blessed. Let me tell you, you are so blessed. Thank God for it every night. 
There are some of us that don't have that blessing. And if you don't have that blessing, I feel your pain and your frustration. (coughs) Keep trying. There's no reason to stop. This is a big issue. Don't let fatigue stop you from spreading the word. But I feel your pain when you have a loved one that you just want to... I know something. This is important. And you, you can't reach them. My grandmother was a Christian. She would have loved to see me come to Jesus. But she died before I became interested in the Bible and church. That's a shame. But on the other hand, if she is saved, it's going to be a wonderful reunion. (laughs) What she had hoped for all of her life finally happened after she was gone. I look forward to that day. I hope that happens. So that's my intro. My intro is all about what do we do? God calls us to spread the good news. This is the Great Commission. In Matthew 28, beginning at verse 16, it says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That covers everywhere you can be. Jesus says, I am completely in control. Do what I say. And he says to make disciples, baptize, and to teach. The Great Commission was given to the disciples, but it applies to all of us as well, just as it applies in the same way with the building on fire. You don't have to be with the fire department to yell, get out. When you know something important, spread the word. How is it possible for one to have faith? How is it possible to be saved? Romans 10.17 tells us, So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Well, that sounds simple enough. I can even understand that. Let's back up a few verses and see the context. Beginning in verse 12, it says, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Four key points just in those two verses. He says, no distinction between Jew and Greek. So that means salvation is for both. The same Lord is Lord of all. It's the same God we preach, the same Jesus, bestowing his riches on all who call him, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's a big everyone statement. It reaches out to the whole world, every tongue and tribe. Continuing on in verse 14, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? Well, that's a good question. How do you call on someone who you have not believed? 
That sounds pretty silly. You wouldn't call on the man in the moon to save you. You don't believe in the man in the moon. How then are they to believe in whom they have never heard? Indeed, if you've never heard about Jesus, how in the world would you ever know about him? And hence the desire to talk to the loved one. Let me tell you about Jesus. And how are they going to hear without someone preaching? And I tell you, folks, there's some bad preaching going on out there. When I was in Long Beach years and years ago, while I wasn't much of a churchgoer, I was the ringer on their basketball team. But I had to go to Bible study. He said the only way I would be on the basketball team would be if I showed up at Bible study twice a month. Okay, I love basketball. So I go to Bible study, and I found that great grounds for amusement to ask questions that they would struggle with. And I ran into one fella who was a, a church goer, been going there for years. And as I talked to him about things, I quickly found out that he, he did not believe in Satan, and he did not believe in hell. That's a, quite a head-scratcher there. He's been going to this church for years, but doesn't even believe in that. And, of course, that became fodder for a great many questions, which leads me to a technique I'd like to put in front of you, just in case you haven't considered it. But when one is asked a question, there is typically a correct answer and an incorrect answer. Typically, and in most cases, we're faced with picking one of the two. Hence, sometimes the wrong one gets picked. But I submit to you there's a third answer. And that third possible answer is I don't know. And there is nothing wrong with I don't know as an answer if that's your best answer. Notice of the three choices between correct, I don't know, and incorrect, the truth is here, and the truth is there because you don't know. So given these two choices, why would you ever pick that? So as long as you're discussing the big stuff, if somebody gives you a question you're not sure of, I don't know is a perfectly fine answer. I used to work for a plant manager where I was at, Everybody loved this guy because he was the only plant manager I ever had who would tell you, I don't know. For some reason, all the other big shots felt they had to make up an answer. They were scared to death of saying, I don't know, and they would be okay if they gave you a correct one, an incorrect answer, as long as they sold it like they knew what they were talking about. But this one plant manager, he was just fine. If he didn't know, he'd tell you, I don't know. And he would add to that, I don't know, but I'll know tomorrow, and I'll see you tomorrow. And sure enough, if that son of a gun didn't show up at your workstation the next day, and he had the answer. Nobody ever did that before in this plant. And he got a lot of respect for himself real quick that way because he put out the effort to actually get you the right answer. But it all started with, I don't know, but I'll check on it. So, 
How are the loved ones to hear without someone preaching? And I give this warning to anyone preaching or teaching is to be careful. Be careful what you say. Avoid the incorrect answer at all costs. Don't be afraid of saying, I don't know. I don't know is your friend. In James chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. To somebody standing in the pulpit that used to send a little shiver down my back, I'm okay right now tonight, but I respect that. I respect that I don't want to give you an incorrect answer. I don't want to give you incorrect information, but I'm, I'm satisfied that I'll go ahead and tell you I don't know. We're dealing with big stuff here. And so Romans 10:17 finishes with, So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of God. If you remember in your math classes, it would do things like A equals B, B equals C, therefore A equals C. We have a statement laid out this way. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of God. Therefore, we can say faith comes through the word of God. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship Created in Jesus Christ for good works. Good works. That means do something. Don't just have the knowledge that you need, the knowledge that saves, the, God, the knowledge that God has been so gracious to come to you and reveal himself and show to you and just sit on it. Do good works. Do something. Not to get saved, but because you know something. For we are his workmanship created in Jesus Christ for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Of course, John 1.1 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So Jesus is the Word. When we teach the Word, we teach Jesus, and vice versa. Matthew 23, verse 8 says, But you are not to be called rabbi. For you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The word is Christ, and Christ is a teacher. It all goes together. Jesus tied with the words in John 1.1. 1, 1, the Word is our teacher. Christ is our teacher. Preaching the Word is one of the most important jobs you can do. When Jim was ordained by Elder Ward, the charge given to him was to preach the Word. What more important thing is there to do that? When you preach the Word, you're preaching Jesus. Are you sensing a trend here? Christ is the Word. Christ is the teacher. Christ is the author of faith. Now, we have done the parable of the sower at least twice in the past year. So here's the fast version. 
Luke 8, verse 5, a sower went out to sow his seed. Verse 11, now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God, and therefore we are sowers of the word. That is in line with the Great Commission, sow the seed, sow the word. That was fast, that was the parable of the sower. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of the Father who is in heaven. So what is his will? What is the will of the Father? Tell all about Jesus. Sow the seed. Sow the word. Spread it around. This is important stuff. This is not a hobby like some people treat Christianity as a club and a nice place to be. Continuing on in Matthew seven twenty two, On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? So what did they do? They prophesied. They cast out demons. And they did mighty works. You can imagine the crowd around these guys would be saying, did you see those guys? Did you see what they did? Mighty works, cast out demons, prophesied. Did you see what those guys did? The focus is not on Jesus. What did they not do? Nowhere in that list is there any mention of them sowing the, the seed, spreading the word, teaching. There's no mention of that in there at all. The three things they did brought glory to the person doing it as opposed to bringing glory to Jesus where it should be. And what did Jesus say? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hear these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. Preach the word. Jesus brings it right around to that. On John chapter 7, verse 14. It says, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. Teaching. We're back in the word again. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning that he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Right there, Jesus tells you that this teaching is straight from God. And Jesus himself was sent by God. That brings you up to sola scriptura, that God's word is sufficient. You need nothing more scripture than what God has in his word. In Acts chapter 8, verse 4, and it reads, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Again, the emphasis is on preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip. And when they heard him and saw the signs he did, for unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lamed were healed. And there was much joy in that city. I'll bet. Acts chapter 8, verse 26. This is Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. 
It reads, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran over to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come and sit with him. I like the use of the word guide here. Because after all, as you've seen verse after verse that I've done here, I'm just plagiarizing. I'm just reading the word. I'm just guiding you through what's already said. The word is Christ. The word saves. There's no safer place to be than staying in God's word. And this verse shows that at least some people need a guide. It'd be nice if all you had to do is sit down with the word in front of you, read it, and understand it. But you need God's revelation to be able to see that. And I know that from personal experience because for years and years and years, I used to be able to try to read Romans. And it might as well have been in Bulgarian for all I cared. I, it wasn't making a lick of sense to me. I could understand other books in the Bible okay, but for some reason, Romans, it just wasn't getting it done. And I knew it wasn't getting it done because it was one of those things when you read something and you don't get it, you back up and try it again, and then you back up for the third time, and then you go, son of a gun, I don't get it. <laughs> and, and that happened way too much. So we're talking about <laughs> spreading the word, having a loved one come to God, to Jesus Christ. How did Paul spread the word? Can we see what Paul did to help us? In Acts 17, now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. And there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. So he's dealing straight in the word, and that's how he's telling them about Christ. He's explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. Now notice what Paul did in reasoning with the word was semi-effective. It worked on some, it did not work on others. While the word is magic, when it works on you, you still have to be among the chosen. God still has to reveal it to you. God still has to open up your eyes and your heart to be able to take it in. Therefore, just reasoning with somebody doesn't exactly work every time. In verse 5, But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, 
set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out of the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. That's, that's how they described Paul and what he was saying. The word of God was turning the world upside down. And Jason received them, and they were all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And this is the same pressure that was used on Jesus in Jerusalem. They used Caesar to put a stop to Jesus. They used Caesar to make sure Jesus got crucified. The Jews used Caesar for the power they needed to kill our Lord and Savior. And the same pressure is being used here, using Caesar to put an end to the preaching of Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. Notice they heard these things. The word is still front and center. It's not they saw these things. They heard them. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Well, evidently they weren't too serious about it because they accepted a payoff money and let them go free. Continuing on in verse 10, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness. They received the word with all eagerness, and they're described as more noble. They were examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. <coughs> Again, they're deep in the word. They're deep in reasoning, and what does God's word actually say? Many of them, as a result of examining the word deeply, many of them therefore believed. There is a cause and effect here. Word leads to belief with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea, also they came there too, here comes the troublemakers, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent off Paul on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command from Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. So teaching, again, is front and center. It's what they were saying that was causing an uproar. And now we get to what I think is, is one of the keys, because this is Paul spreading the word in Athens. And again, we see him using reasoning, because in this particular case, this is what Greeks do. They reason and they talk. And he said he's in Mars Hill where they talk and talk and talk and reason. In verse 16, it continues on now. While Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within in him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? And others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching 
Jesus and the resurrection. Notice he's not preaching the law. He is preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And when they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. Again, it's all word center. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling and hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. So he's trying to make a connection with them. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. So he's going to preach about something they already have a statue to. It's pretty hard for them to back off this. He's, in, he's got a good start here. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all, gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. That is a glorious God. He gives all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. That's a good passage. In him we live and move and have our being. And even some of our own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine is being like gold or silver or stone an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So Paul is reasoning with the Greeks he is preaching a mighty God, a creator God. Everything is through God, and he is preaching resurrection. He is reasoning. He is using the word to do it. And some of them can understand, and some of them cannot. So how do we reach the loved one? Considering Paul was preaching, and some of them can understand, and some can not. We have seen that faith comes from the word of God. The word is holy. The word is sufficient. That's sola scriptura, scripture alone. We've seen that Jesus is the word. Jesus is the teacher. He's the giver of faith. 
He is Lord and Savior. He is the Son of God. This would be sola Christus, Christ alone. And if we could reach somebody, it's just our sinful nature that we would want to take some of the credit. And there's no sharing in the glory. And that leads us to the third sola, sola Deo Gloria, glory to God alone. If our effort was needed to bring the loved one to Christ, that would violate faith alone, sola fide. And it's not by our works. That's grace alone, sola gracia. So everything in the solas points to Christ. How do we reach the loved one? Well, we can teach the word. We can scatter the seed because we are told to. We can study the word because we are told to. We can praise his name. We're told to worship him. But in the end, it's not you and I that can save that loved one that we wish would come to Jesus. After all, how did we become saved? Was it another human being that came to us and led us and fixed things for us? Why would things be any different for the loved one when we think we need to do the fix-it and we need to help them come to Christ? Let me give you another diagram. Here's the problem. There's me. There's the loved one, and we're communicating with each other, and I'm trying to tell them about Christ, what he's done for me, the peace and contentment you can have that you can't have otherwise, and the communication is going back and forth on a horizontal. I'm missing something here, and what I'm missing is Jesus And the issue is this. That's what saves. Jesus coming to the loved one, opening their eyes, opening their hearts, and drawing him. And all this baloney in here that sinful me thinks I can fix it. It might be helpful. I am told to preach the word. I am told to spread the seed. It might be helpful doing some of this. But the same thing that saved me is the same thing that would save the loved one. Now, is that going to bring you peace? Well, probably not, because after all, you want to see the loved one saved, and there's no guarantee it. And as humans, our heart wants to see them know the love of Christ. We can pray for grace to be granted to the loved one. We can pray for grace by the one who can grant grace, and that's Jesus. Jesus saves, not us. We continue to follow what Jesus wants us to do. But always remember, not my will, but thy will be done. And if it's the will of Jesus to do one thing, and it's our will to do something else, Hang on to not my will, but thy will be done. And keep preaching the word. Tell people about Jesus. Pray that Jesus would show his grace on the loved one. And stand back and wait for that reaction. And pray to God that that's what happens. 
because it's Jesus that saves and not us reaching out and feverishly working to try to help the loved one be saved. Jesus saves. That's what's on my mind tonight. I hope I've glorified our Savior. I tried to keep this directed toward him because as a sinful man, it's too easy for me to go astray. But Jesus Christ saves. And whenever you find yourself thinking horizontally, remember there's an arrow coming from above that has a whole lot more power. (laughs) Thank God for that. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God. Oh,